best word to maybe be emotions uh, that we see exhibited in the Psalms and what the Psalms and the Proverbs have to say about them and how we should walk in them and navigate them as Christians. Because uh, believe it or not, though we like to pretend we don't have them, we do have emotions, right? We've talked about anger uh, and, and what that looks like to be angry in a godly way. We talked about fear and anxiety. Uh, we talked about desire the past couple of weeks. And now uh, we're moving into, in the Psalms in particular today, uh, on despair. Um, and so despair, sorrow, sadness is what we're talking about. Um, so once you get there, uh, if you go to Psalm uh, 88, if you, if you are able to this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read it together. So Psalm 88, starting in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to shale. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness for your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is God's word. You may be seated. Um, so that's a heavy psalm. Uh, as you can see there reading through that, um, this psalm in particular is very interesting because it is the only psalm that you will read in the book of Psalms, which this was like the song book of the the Hebrew language, so this would have been like a, a really sad song. It would have been like some blues, all right? It's like the blues version in ancient Hebrew culture. Um, and, and what happens is this is the only psalm with like no uh, hopeful crescendo uh, somewhere mixed in there. Every psalm that you read, there's like, there's a lot of psalms like this where people are expressing their heart to God in utter despair, totally ruined, but they have something in there like, but God, I will praise you still because I know that you will save me. Or, you know, you can put a bunch of different things in there that they have. But this is the only psalm in particular where there is no obvious uh, form of praise and or hope of salvation from their sorrow. And so it's an interesting psalm to look at. I remember... Um, Back when I, I used to work in a youth ministry, we had a leader there who, uh, and we would kind of do these things where we would pray together in the morning and then after the prayer, someone would come and give like an encouraging word to start our day. Uh, and, and I remember one of the leaders one time came, it's like, I wanna read out of Psalm 88. And my first thought was, oh no, I don't know where this is going, but this is gonna be depressing. And he actually handled it pretty well talking about uh, despair and things like that. But it's just one of those Psalms that you read, you don't feel like, man, that was a good 
morning devotion. I can start my day now, right? Um, and so I'm hoping to prove you otherwise uh, that this really is a relatable story to the subject of despair and uh, God's salvation in our despair, our hope in our despair, uh, but it's not obvious, and so we're gonna do some digging. Um, but the truth is that we all experience despair, and despair maybe kind of sounds like a strong word, but in your lifetime, it is pretty much 100% uh, that most of you will experience some form of sorrow, some form of loss, some form of despair. And it is also statistically true that most of us as Christians probably don't know properly how to handle that sorrow and that despair. Uh, right? We talked a few weeks ago about just the percentage of anxiety, not only in the church, but in our Western culture. Uh, the inability to deal with the sorrows of life and the struggles of life is just something that we probably most likely to at least some degree embody within ourselves. And, and so um, it's important that we learn how do we address that? How do we deal with sorrow as it comes up in our life? Because it, it will happen. We will experience it. So what I want to do first is um, I would just like to pray for our time, uh, and then I want to hop into uh, this psalm and really talk about what, what is he feeling right here, the psalmist, and, and talk about what we, we do with that. So if you would join me in prayer this morning, uh, we'll do that and get started. So Father, we uh, love you. We love your word. We love uh, that you care for us, and God, that you hear our prayer. I pray that you would bolster our belief this morning that you delight in hearing our prayers it is your joy to hear us complain, as strange as that sounds. And so, God, I pray that you would come into our sorrow. I know not everyone right now may be dealing with a sorrowful life, but I pray that you would meet us, those who are in the midst of suffering, in the midst of feeling uh, maybe cold spiritually and not understanding, God, where you are, feeling forsaken by you. I pray, God, that you would use your word and the power of your spirit to cause us, God, to rejoice in the midst of our suffering, to rejoice in the midst of our sorrow because you care for us and you're working it out for our good. And so God, would you help us, would you forgive us for not trusting in you and believing in you because you are good. God, guide our time and help us to have ears that can really hear your word and what you're saying. We pray against the enemy that would love for us to leave out of here depressed and sorrowful and not seeing the hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Don't let that happen, God, but open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about what is this guy feeling. So his name is uh, Heman. Almost sounds like He-Man, but it's probably not pronounced like that. Uh, but this guy wrote a song, and the songs, uh, Sons of Korah put this together. Um, and so if I say David, I apologize. He wrote a lot of the psalms, and so it's just naturally, you just kind of say David, but this is not David right here in this psalm. Uh, but let's just go through a few things he's feeling. Uh, one, he feels close and near to death. I don't know if he was sick. The beauty of this psalm is we don't really know what was going on in his life. We just know it was pretty dark stuff, all right? It's like something you would find at like a... I don't know, on one of those late night like soap operas or something. It's really deep, okay? It's really kind of muddled. And here's what he says. First, he feels near to death. Let's look at verse three through six and then 10 through 12. And I'm gonna kind of read through them just to kind of get the language and the strength of the language. But he says this. He says, my, my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. This probably meant the grave or the place where the wicked go when they die, is what it says. Um, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. 
you have put me in the depths of the pit, meaning the grave, in the regions, dark and deep. And then in verse 10, he says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? For your faithfulness, or sorry, uh, for and are your wonders known in the darkness, sorry, uh, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And so uh, there's this feeling that, that this guy who's writing this psalm feels close to death. And I don't know if that's literally, he feels like he's about to die because he's on his sickbed or his soul is so downcast and sorrowful that he feels like he's on the verge of death. So much so that he's explaining to God, he's saying, could, could the dead praise you, right? Like, how can I glorify you if I die? Like, let me live and not be this close to death so that I might glorify you and praise your name. He's experiencing this deep sorrow. Uh, and if you're a pretty jolly person by nature, maybe you don't necessarily experience things in this way, but it, it is possible to experience such sorrow and uncertainty in your life that you feel close to death, almost as if death would even be preferred. He also has this understanding of God's wrath. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. And so he's experiencing not only being close to death, but the feeling of God's wrath on him. Um, it, it might be something like this, you know, when we're not believing the gospel, right? That, it, that we are clean in Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven in Jesus Christ, that we are loved in Jesus Christ because of what he did for us on the cross. Uh, we could experience this sense of God's wrath, right? This uncertainty about God and his love and if he's really close to us or not. He's also experiencing relational strain. In verse eight, he says this, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. And then in verse 18, he says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And so he's having some serious relational issues. Something that has happened that he is blaming God has caused, has caused his friends to hate him. This is much worse than getting a dislike on Facebook or not enough likes, right? This is, he feels like he has been abandoned by friends. Utterly, uh, destroyed his relationships, whatever the situation is, he's relationally strained and he doesn't have those close friendships to lean on. He also feels abandoned by God and separated from him. Look at verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? So not only does he feel distant from people, but he feels distant from God. And I think as a believer, we could probably say this is by far gotta be the worst sorrow, right? And you may have those seasons quite often. I've had those seasons where I feel very distant from God. I feel like, God, why are you hiding from me? What's going on? There isn't this like warm sense of his presence, right? And, and as you read his word, this warm sense of understanding and the spirit is opening your eyes to know him more and walking with him. There's this deep sorrow that he's separated from God. And I think as a believer, it's important to acknowledge that that happens. Um, and also, in general, and this could probably apply to pretty much all circumstances, but he feels out of control and helpless. In verse 15, he says, uh, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. And so he's acknowledging that whatever is going on, whatever sorrow is happening to him right now in his life, that he is absolutely helpless to do anything about it, right? To make something great come from this is just not, he just... He's not able to do it, right? He feels totally helpless. And a lot of times we feel that way, right? Because you're really not in control of your life. 
You could literally walk down these stairs right here, which is just one stair, maybe, maybe one and a half, and you could die by falling right there. I mean, you have no control over pretty much anything in your life, and he's experiencing that in the midst of his sorrow as helpless. Now, you're probably thinking this sounds pretty depressing. I don't know where this is going. Me neither, so let's figure this out together, okay? Um, so I just got three things I want to point out from, from this psalm, and then I want to go to another text in, in a minute. But I just want to acknowledge that we do... Uh, experience sorrow. This is something that happens not only in the non-Christian life, but in the Christian life. Everyone experiences sorrow because of sin. This world is messed up, right? It's messed up, and we experience sorrow and despair and suffering and hardship, and it's just absolutely no one is going to get to avoid that because at least everyone dies. We know that, right? But outside of that, there's just a lot of terrible things that happen to us in life, and so, um, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little more, but I just want to say it's not unchristian. Uh, to grieve and experience sorrow. It's just unchristian to grieve and experience sorrow without hope. There's the difference there. And so my first point is that we can grieve our despair. We, we can grieve. That's something that is uh, not only uh, that should happen, but something that's recommended in the Bible. Sometimes we get this feeling about the Christian life that we always, uh, in order to, to be truly Christian and spiritual, we always have to be jolly, Right? And I would just say, don't be jolly if you're in a circumstance that doesn't require jolliness. There's no command that you have to have a smile all the time. There's no command in the Bible to do that. You are allowed to experience sorrow, and it is going to hurt, and it should hurt. That's what sorrow is. Um, And so it's easy for us sometimes, and maybe not easy, but maybe we try in order to be spiritually astute. You know, we try to avoid feeling our suffering you say oh it's fine you know the gospel covers it Jesus died it's okay and those are good things and we should preach those truths to ourselves but the bible I think here is recommending that we grieve and we grieve hard when the situation calls for grieving now there's some situations that don't really call for grieving all right like if you didn't get the close parking spot things like that but there are situations of life that definitely call for grieving and should be grieved um second corinthians uh six shed some lights on this this is what it says in verse eight through ten it says We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed. And then verse 10 right here, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And so Paul gives this picture of the Christian life is that we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's what I mean when I say there's grieving with hope. The Christian life is, yes, we can grieve, but we do it with hope. And so uh, we are called to be be sorrowful, yet to always be rejoicing, because no matter what, we have things to rejoice in, right? No matter what is going on, we have the hope of the glory of God in us. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, that says says that no matter what happens, that we're gonna spend eternity with Jesus and free from sin, and that's gonna be the best thing ever, right? So we can be sorrowful, but yet we're always rejoicing. So don't pretend um, to not be grieving when the situation calls for it. This is what makes us different. You gotta think about this, okay? What makes Christians different is not necessarily that we are the best behaving people, to the world, right? I mean, you just think about this. There, there's other sects, uh, there's like uh, Mormons, for instance, they're really good moral people, right? And I could go on and list a lot of things, but what makes us different is not that our morals are always the best and that we're always free from sin. What makes us different in the world that really shines the darkness is how we handle 
our grief and our sorrow. This is what makes us shine as lights in the midst of darkness. Yes, our holiness also has something to do with that, right? We're called to be holy as God is holy, but I think there's something special about the way God uses our suffering and our reaction to our suffering to spread the gospel, probably even more than our well-articulate plan to deliver the gospel verbally. I'm not saying we shouldn't preach the gospel because how are they gonna know if they don't hear, right? But the way that we handle our suffering and we handle our sorrow matters. It matters a lot in how we do that. So it's not that we experience grief and despair, but it's in the thick of our grief and despair that we rejoice in hope in our Savior. And that makes us different. I love this line out of Hebrews 10, verse 34. It says this. It says, for you had compassion on those in prison. This is the writer of Hebrews talking to a group of Christians. And he says, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so these people, for whatever reason, probably for being Christian, they were persecuted and had their stuff taken away. And the writer of Hebrews said that they joyfully accepted the stealing of their property because they had a better possession in abiding one, right? And when we joyfully accept the sorrow and despair of life because we have a better and more lasting comfort, that looks glorious. That is what makes the gospel unignorable in our city. That's what the Lord uses to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth and to show that he is worth it. That's what makes us different. It's not that we don't experience the same sorrow. There's many teachings in churches that say, if you just believe enough, right? If you just have enough faith and have enough positive attitude, then what's gonna happen is that everything's gonna work out, right? You're not gonna be sick anymore. You're gonna be fine. There's always gonna be healing. You're always gonna have enough money. Um, But that's just not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. There is an element of faith, yes, that we should have, but at the end of the day, whatever comes our way, um, we say God is enough. God is enough. If we don't have everything, anything, but we have God, we have everything, right? So we can grieve. We can grieve and that's okay. And if we do it in the right way, it's actually glorious and very telling of the gospel that we believe, amen? So we can grieve. Okay, next is um, we can pray to God about our despair, And I'm using the word can here, not because, well, you don't have to, but you might, you can if you want to. Uh, We we could say will, but I'm using can because we have the freedom. Uh, We have the freedom to pray to God. Uh, The psalmist here, Haman, uh, he begins his psalm with a, a petition to his Savior. He's asking something. Look at verse two. He says, let my prayer come before you and incline your ear to my cry. He is crying out. He is praying with passion to God. And he says, God, my only request is that you just listen. And then after he says that, he goes on to explain all of the despair that he is feeling. And if you look at the model prayer from Jesus, right? The, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This doesn't look like that, right? I mean, this looks very different. He says, God, listen to me. And then he goes on to say, and you did this to me. Because of you, all my friends are gone. Because this happened, blah, blah, blah. And he goes on to express himself in a very crass way, if you will. This isn't very eloquent. Uh, this isn't an eloquent prayer that should be written down, but it is, and it's there for a reason. And so for most of us, when we experience despair and suffering and we're having a hard time, our bent is not um, to pray. 
our bent is to worry, right? Most of the time, when we experience suffering, our bent is not to come to God and express ourselves to him in honesty and sincerity and ask him to do something about it, but rather, our bent is probably to try to fix it ourselves. Say, oh no, I'm sick, I need to go to a doctor. And I'm not condoning you don't go to a doctor and just say, oh no, God's gonna heal me. I think that would be unwise if you can get to a doctor, go to one, all right? But what I'm saying is, our bent is not to prayer, it's the opposite, Right, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he comes back to his disciples and they keep falling asleep, what does he say? He says, wake up and pray. Don't you know the hour has come? He says, the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is acknowledging we don't want to pray in our flesh. That's not our bend. That's not our desire, but it should be. And when we read this psalm and this petition and what follows, there's some freedom here to pray for us. I love it. Because this is the only petition in the entire psalm, and I believe this speaks into God's desire to hear our prayers. That's why I prayed that at the beginning, because um, God wants to listen to your prayers. And it's not just your well-thought-out prayers. You know, Jesus actually even rebuked uh, the Pharisees for having these elaborate prayers that had many words, right? He says they think they're going to be heard because of all their words. It's not true. They just want to be seen by people or, or, or people to think they're awesome and good. But he says, rather, we, we just pray. We express what's really going on in our hearts. We're, we're honest with God. So how does this psalm writer pray? I got a few things. One, he prays constantly. Look at verse one. He says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Verse nine, this is the back half of the verse. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning, my prayer comes before you. The psalmist is crying out day and night, every day, every morning. Means he's getting up early. For those of you who don't like rising up early, all right? He's getting up early. He's going to bed late. He's doing whatever it takes, and he is praying earnestly and constantly. Um, And there's many parables that Jesus tells about this too, but we should pray persistently. We should be annoyingly consistent with our prayers to God, even if it's about the same thing. I doubt he was praying about a bunch of different things. When I read this psalm, all I can think of is all he can feel is his despair. And all he can do is constantly pray. Why? Because he knows that God is the only one that can do something about it. That's why he cries out in verse one, O Lord, God of my salvation, the God who's going to deliver me, who's the only one that can rescue me. I cry day and night. We would do ourselves great service to cry out to God day and night in our despair and our sorrow because he listens. Not only does he pray constantly, but he prays honestly. Let's look at verse three. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to show. He's acknowledging his troubles. Verse 14, oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? He's so honest that, I mean, when I read that, I cringe a little bit. I'm like, dude, don't you know that God can control lightning bolts and stuff, right? It's like, he just so ashamed, he's like unashamed about it, right? He's like, God, you hide your face from me. How long are you gonna cast me away? What are you doing? And so I just wanna point out that he is brutally honest in his prayer, Now, I'm not suggesting that we curse God or unjustly blame God for things. We should be terrified of God in a good way, right? A trusting, terrifying kind of way. But we should be honest with God. 
God already knows what's going on. That's why Jesus taught us to pray honestly because God already knows what you need and want to ask for and therefore we ask for it. We ask for it, unashamed, honest about how we feel because God really cares. This is important to understand because a lot of us probably don't feel like God really cares about the little things that you have to say and he does. He does. And it fits into this grand story of your life that God is working together to rescue you and bring you unto himself and glorify his name in your salvation. He is working it out that way. Every little detail matters and we can be honest in the midst of our sorrow, even though we've already prayed for it. I think I told this a few weeks ago, but I met a guy one time at a church I used to work for who came up and told me, he said, Eric, I only pray for things once. He said, after that, no more. Don't pray for it again. Never even think about it again because God has it. And I remember thinking when he told me that, I didn't tell him this because he was much older than, than myself and it, I don't know how it would have went, but I remember thinking, that is stupid, right? Like, I mean, the Bible literally teaches the opposite. Yes, we should trust God, but we don't pray for things once. We pray for things over and over and over with persistency because God cares. But we can be honest. And lastly, um, he prays earnestly. In, in verse one and verse 13, he uses this language to cry out. He's crying to God. He's crying out to him, which implies a yelling, an earnestness about what he is praying for. And, and I would say, I, I don't think that we should fake earnestness. Like we shouldn't fake passion in our prayers. Like, oh God, I'm just so passionate about this right now. I'm just praying. Like God can see through that, right? Like that would be silly to do that because God knows you're not passionate. But I think that there, what's probably gonna drive us to prayer is that when we're in a, in a moment of despair and a moment of helplessness and we're pushed to the edge like this guy in the Psalm, that that should breed inside of us, maybe not a passion for God, but at least a passion, right, to be delivered, a passion, like an understanding that our situation is hopeless without God. And when we understand that our situation is hopeless without God, that's what brings an earnestness to our prayers. And so if you can't even form that passion, you just say, God, I can't, I can't form that passion, right? An honesty in our prayers is important. And one of the beauties that I wanna point out from this too, because you're probably thinking, yeah, all oh, that sounds good, but it's just so hard for me to pray, right? It's like I get there uh, to the place where I'm gonna pray, I begin to pray, and then all of a sudden, there's just, just nothing there, right? I, I can, okay, God, do this, this, this. And then about two seconds in, you run out of things to say, right? You're like, okay, well, that was awesome, right? And then you just kind of go about your day. But the cool thing is that even when we cannot pray, God prays for us. When we cannot pray, God prays for us. Look at Romans 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Jesus, despite your prayerlessness, prays for you all the time at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only that, but Romans 8, a little earlier, starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. If you find yourself saying, I can't pray, I don't know what to pray for, I don't know how to pray, it's just where I'm at. Be encouraged. Jesus 
at the right hand of the throne of God prays for you. The Holy Spirit himself intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words, and he is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. God literally gives us everything we need to pray to him. He he leads us, and oftentimes I think leads us in times of sorrow like this for the simple fact that we would pray to him. The simple fact that we would cry out to him that he might rescue us and deliver us. But God is praying for us in the midst of our sorrow, and that matters. That matters. So God himself is not only a listener, but he's also a prayer on our behalf. So we can grieve, we should grieve, we can pray, and we should pray. And lastly, we can trust God for salvation in the midst of our despair and sorrow. We can trust God for salvation in the midst of our despair and sorrow. So like I mentioned earlier, this psalm has no real crescendo of hope in it. There are some things you can point out to. He does call God uh, the God of his salvation. So there's an experience there that says, God is my salvation. And I would probably just address this and say that if you don't really know the Lord, uh, it's impossible to say and feel that, right? But if you've experienced the salvation of God in your life, rescuing you from sin and death, then with confidence you can say, God is the God of not just salvation, but God is the God of my salvation. God has rescued me. God has proven himself over and over again to me. And though I don't feel it right now in the midst of my sorrow, I can believe that God is the God of my salvation. And that matters to us. Um, And this psalm does not seemingly leave us with any solid answers, right? I feel like we think sometimes if I could just have answers, like I'm not even worried about being rescued from my sorrow, but if I could just have answers of why I'm in this sorrow, of why God designed it this way, then I would be totally content, right? I've believed that a lot, right? You kind of feel like, I don't know what you're doing, but if you could just tell me why you're doing it, we could be on the same page, like same team, right? We could go in and tackle it together. That would be awesome. But the truth is that no matter how many answers you got for the why question, it is not going to satisfy uh, your longing uh, for God. It's not, no matter how, it's not gonna help you in the midst of your sorrow. It's not gonna bring that comfort that you so desire. And this Psalm kind of leads us there with no answers. Um, So we could just let the sermon end because the Psalm ends and we could just close it there and walk away feeling super depressed. But um, there's a few other things I think are very important. And I would say, although it's hard to see hope here, uh, I think the Psalmist is onto something, okay? When he says, um, he'd talk about feeling God's hand of wrath, uh, and he's, he's telling God, God, you've done this to me. You've led me into this place of sorrow. I think what he's pointing out here is God's sovereign hand over the events of his life. And we talked about this a lot, but God is in control, right? You're not in control. God is in control. And so he's acknowledging the God of his salvation has control in the midst of his sorrows. There's a guy named uh, Adoniram Judson. I've always wanted to name a child Adoniram, but my wife said, absolutely not. That's the one name that she said, that's clear, never gonna happen, okay? So don't even have any hope in that name. But he was a missionary to Burma, actually the first American missionary ever. Uh, and he experienced a lot of suffering. Burma is modern day, like Myanmar, I think is what the country is now. Uh, but he lost seven of 13 children uh, in his missionary journeys to death. 
He lost uh, three wives, not at the same time. Okay, I, know I, was, I was thinking about that. I was gonna say that and move on, but I was like, he didn't have, he was one at a time, okay? He's like, he would get married, fall in love, one would die, he would get married again, fall in love, another one would die. It's kind of how it happened in his life. Um, he uh, really went without a lot of the joys and comforts and happy things that we have in our life. He went without those for the sake of the gospel. He lost a lot of uh, family members that died at early ages. Um, he literally only saw them once after he went on the mission field at a young age. He only came back to America to see his family one time and he was kind of forced to because his wife was really sick at the present time. Um, he spent 17 months in prison unjustly while his wife and child suffered from hunger outside of the prison. He could do nothing about it. I can go on and on. This guy suffered a lot, but he had an interesting take on all of this because I thought, man, you know, if you're experiencing that, what's your thought, right? Like, God, I'm out here to serve you, right? I'm literally spreading your gospel to the ends of the earth and all I get is suffering. I mean, this guy had little to say, oh, that was a blimp of hope right there. It was six years before he even saw one convert. Um, and then when he did see converts, many of them died because of their witness for the gospel. But he said this about his life. He said, if I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. So for him, God's sovereignty in the midst of his suffering was a deal breaker. He said, if I did not know that God's sovereign hand and infinite, unsearchable love and mercy and wisdom was ordering all of my sufferings, there is no way I would have lasted in Burma. There's no way I would have stayed there for 33 years until my early death in order to spread the gospel if I had not thought of that. And so from this psalm, the hope I wanna point out is that God's sovereign and loving and joyful hand in the midst of your despair is absolutely and positively the best thing that you could hope for. The best way that you could find comfort. And I know the kickback, right? The kickback might be, well, if God is sovereign and he's loving, then why is this happening, right? Why did God design so much suffering? And the reason is because he loves you, right? And in Romans 8, we were just talking about God praying. It's that same portion of the scripture where nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? Where he's working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's all things, all things work out for your good. And so in the midst of sorrow, the only anchor we have it's not that everything's gonna work out dandy in this life, it's that God is in control and whatever happens, though I may not know the answer to why always, I know the ultimate why and that's for my good and his glory and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth and that makes me happy even in the midst of my sufferings. Though I grieve, I'm, I'm sorrowful, yet I'm, I'm always rejoicing, always rejoicing because it's good. And this, I think, just sounds crazy if you don't know who Jesus is, right? It sounds nuts if you don't know him. So it's not that we expect immediate deliverance from all our despair. On the contrary, we expect that God will do to us whatever is ultimately good for us and his kingdom at the same time. It does not mean that he will not ever immediately deliver us from sufferings because he does that often, and we believe that he's more than able, right? We believe that he's more able. And this psalm is a reminder of that. This psalm is a reminder that God has mercy on his children when they're in pain, <laughs> when they're uh, suffering. 
So I'm not saying that our prayer should always be, God, you're sovereign, whatever happens, happens, it's all good. We express to him, we beg God to, we, we plead that he would help us, and he often does help us immediately. But when he doesn't, we can still rejoice because we know that immediate answer was not what we immediately needed, right? To know him, to worship him, to obey him, to love him, to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. So I, but at the end of the day with this psalm and this cliffhanger that it's, that it's leaving, in our last couple minutes, I wanna show you what I think God is ultimately doing with this psalm, okay? I think God is doing something much bigger here than leaving us hanging, it's like the awkward fist bump where someone doesn't come. You know, it's, oh, this is weird, right? It's, that's not what God is doing here. This awkward feeling of no obvious hope should cause us to pause and ask the question, what can we do? What do we do in our suffering? What do we do in our sorrow? What do we do in our despair? How can we find hope? How do we find deliverance? How do we find salvation? And this psalm is a whisper and a hint to something greater than our despair and our sorrow, and that's Jesus. It's Jesus. You could see this all through the life of Jesus, and I want to give an example of Jesus. That was confusing. There we go. That's the right page. Sorry. In Mark 14, verse 32 to 36, you don't have to turn there, but I just want to read Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to feel what Jesus is feeling here. It sounds a lot like this psalm. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, that being Jesus, I sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And we read later on, he goes on to do that three times, to pray the same prayer. Abba, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. I am sorrowful even unto death. And then we know what happened, right? He was arrested that night. He was brutally beaten had an awful trial with no justice. He was nailed to a cross, and on that cross, he experienced the wrath of God, not just physical pain, but the wrath of God that all of our sins deserve. Experienced that on himself, and he's got those famous words where he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And now, don't tell me God can't empathize with your sorrow. Don't tell me God can't feel what you feel in the midst of your sorrow. Don't tell me that God is absent as you cry out to him in the midst of your sorrow and your despair. He's not. He is very present. He is a God, the only God, out of all the religions that has experienced sorrow like we have experienced it and now with salvation in the palm of his hand, he freely offers us hope and comfort in the midst of our sorrow, even sorrow unto death, amen? He does, he does. We can cry to him, 
we can pray to him. We can call out to him. We can trust him for salvation. Maybe not always in this life, but definitely in the life to come, right? The ultimate salvation and rescue from our sorrow, Jesus will bring us. And then one last encouragement, because I thought about this heavy topic and I'm thinking, okay, what if someone in here is having like the best week of their life? <laughs> You're gonna feel like, this is awkward. Maybe I'm not spiritual, right? <laughs> you come in here and be like, I obviously don't know Jesus because I'm not in utter despair and feel like I'm dying. Um, if that's you, I would say in what Romans 12 encourages us to do, right? In verse 15, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So if you're not feeling despair and sorrow, I'm sure there's someone in a close reach of your hand that is. And as the people of God, by the spirit of God, we can rejoice in other people's joy even when we are despairing and we can be sorrowful and weeping in other people's weeping even when we're rejoicing. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ in the midst of sorrow is that we get to bind together in our joy and in our sorrow, to be always rejoicing and always sorrowful at the same time to do that together. So my encouragement is, if that's not what you're experiencing right now, one, hang on to these truths and these promises for when it does come, because it does come, and a lot of times it's often. And then if you are experiencing that sorrow, that would be my same please, cling to these truths. The word of God has just held out to us very precious and great promises that in believing them, we find everlasting hope, eternal life, ultimate joy, right? That's what God offers. So I just wanna take a moment and just, just ask God for that assurance, right? In the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our pain. And then I also wanna ask him that he would help us to be a body of believers that both help one another in the midst of our sorrow and then also handle our sorrow in such a way that it is glorious to a dying world. I wanna pray that together. So if you guys bow your heads with me, let's pray together. Father, um, it is no accident that we're here today. It's no accident that we got to hear your word, what your Psalms say on despair. And God, for those despairing, for those despairing right now in their lives, for those that are filled with sorrow, maybe feel so distant from you. Maybe they're ready to give up on this whole Christian way of life because God, they don't know you. God, I've been there. I've been there very deeply and I know what that feels like and God, you hear prayer. God, you come at the right time by your mercy and your grace and you rescue us from that despair. God, for those who don't even believe in you, I pray that you would hold out to them this morning your salvation that you have and you offer to all because of what you did on the cross, absorbing our punishment and now giving us freedom of life. God, would you offer that today to those who don't believe? And God, for providence, would you help us to be a people that are always sorrowful yet always rejoicing? To not just be a fake kind of jolly that just looks fake to the world, but a real, authentic, honest group of people that know how to suffer well. Because when we do that, God, by the power of your spirit, 
God, it's so beautiful the way it portrays and proclaims your gospel because your gospel is beautiful. So God, don't just give us a self-help kind of way to get out of our suffering, but give us an eternal way to enter into our suffering with joy because we know that it's through many trials and sufferings that we will enter the kingdom of God. And so help us to be a different people. God, for those in here right now who just need prayer, I pray they would not be shy today to go get prayer from someone in this room. God, you'd allow them that freedom to go and get prayer. And God, we just pray, help us to suffer well. Help us to handle our sorrow with so much joy and so much hope that it just looks ridiculous to those who don't know you. And we ask this in your precious son's name. Amen.